dismissed for children's church, just a couple things. Hey, hold on. I said, I'm stressing you. A couple things we want to celebrate. Um, the our youth group, we had over 50 students go to an indie all-nighter um, where they shared the gospel. And so I want to thank the youth leaders and all of those who helped make that event a success. And so if you see some um, kind of bleary-eyed uh, young adults around, that is why. And um, so that is part, and the hour change doesn't help. Um, the other thing is uh, this past week, uh, Jude, um, our um, intern, he's from the country of Brazil, has been working on his citizenship, was supposed to have an interview Thursday, but that got canceled, and they rearranged some stuff to have it Friday, and Friday was supposed to be an interview, and that interview happened, but they have a bunch more stuff happen, and so as of Friday, Jude became an American citizen, so that was a good celebration. So it's been a, been a long process and glad for them to be able to do that. Um, as we were chatting out here before we came in, we were talking about Haley maybe playing God Bless America and you'd come in with a flag. But we thought we'd keep the emphasis on the Lord, but we think it's certainly in his provision and providing for that we're excited about. And so they're going to continue uh, to raise support and the uh, plan is for them to be here uh, about another year or so, year plus as they raise support. But uh, we're Congratulations, Jude and, and Bree as well. Exciting time for you guys. Well, this time, okay, kids, you can go now. All right, go. All right, and um, <clears throat> so the rest of us, if you have your old Bibles open to the book of Mark, chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, and again, it's on page 851 in your pew Bibles. As we begin this morning, uh, the title of our sermon this morning is The Agony of Victory. And uh, that phrase is not usually what we hear, think about when we hear of agony going together. When I was growing up, there was a Saturday TV show, ABC Sports, called The Wide World of Sports. And The Wide World of Sports began with uh, music that is very, very familiar. And it began with this statement, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports. And then it said, the thrill of victory and the what? Agony of defeat. And the agony of defeat on that television screen was a picture of what? Yeah, the skier, right? The skier going down the slopes, and he's supposed to go up, and he misses it, and he wipes out, and, and skis going everywhere. And uh, that individual's agony of defeat is impressed on all of our minds because Saturday after Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, they replayed it. As we think about the agony of defeat, we, we, many of us can recognize that. You know, things you've striven for, you've worked hard to achieve, and it not happens. And you end up defeated, and there is agony in that. Well, this morning, we're going to look at this a little differently. We're going to look not at the agony of defeat, but the agony of victory. The agony of victory, and our topic this morning, is on Jesus and the pain and struggle that was involved in his life as he sought to achieve victory in the kingdom of God. In our text this morning, we'll see Jesus agonizing. He's agonizing over all that would lead to his victory over sin and death through his death and resurrection. And so in our Mark chapter 14, we are we're going to begin in verse 32. So let's look there together. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And, they, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, 
My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, why are you, asleep? Are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is in, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, and their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve with him, and a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came and went up to him, at once he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and they seized him. But one of those who stood, stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. As we look at this passage, we see Jesus and his disciples uh, retiring to a familiar setting. This familiar setting, and we looked at these images a couple of weeks ago to help us to get the lay of the land. And number two on the screen is, is the temple complex. And this is the current Jerusalem, and so that's an Islamic mosque. But the Jewish temple would have been there at the time of Jesus. And he has left that area, traveled down the hill, and then back up over to number one area. And that is the Mount of Olives. And in that Mount of Olives area is where the area that we know is Gethsemane. It was a garden. And the word Gethsemane means olive press. And so they're full of olive trees, olive trees like this, where they would collect these olives. There would be a press and make olive. Very similar to this, that Jesus retired with his disciples. And they are there, and as they gather there together, Jesus says to them in our passage in verse 32, he says, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And, and, and this would have been a very familiar um, activity. Jesus often would go away to pray by himself. We see that recorded in a number of places in the Gospels. And so very familiar in the fact that he would take Peter, James, and John. They were the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, and so that they would go with him would not be surprising either. But something very unfamiliar happens. As, as, they, as Jesus is going away, um, it tells us that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Uh, to, and, and think about if you have a friend, and you know a friend pretty well, 
that you can tell if they're distressed and troubled. And you watch their life and you can just tell that you know something's not right. And for the disciples, this would have been completely unfamiliar. We've read accounts in the New Testament about times when Jesus, well, or if we were there, we would have been distressed. Uh, there are times whenever there are people trying to arrest Jesus. You know, you're seeking to be under arrest. That might cause a little bit of distress. But prior to this, didn't bother Jesus at all. Other times that people came to Jesus, and one time that they came and he was teaching, and they didn't like what he was teaching, and they, they were going to throw him off a cliff. Jesus didn't seem distressed or troubled, doesn't record anything like that. Another time Jesus is teaching, and the people are gathered around him, and they're going to stone him to death. No indication that he was distressed or troubled then. But we see it now. And we see and we think about Peter, James, and John watching their close friend, the one who they know is the Messiah, that they know who he is, and they're seeing him distressed, and they certainly would have been wondering, what's going on? But Jesus doesn't tell them. He simply says in verse 34, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And so what they're seeing, Jesus verbalizes. He verbalizes this distress. He's sorrowful even to death. And going a little further, so just a little farther, it says he falls to the ground and he prays. Jesus' face is on the ground and he is praying and he's praying and it says this. He says, and he prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And we're told here why Jesus was in such distress. Jesus is in distress because the hour had come. This idea of the hour is picked up throughout, particularly the book of John, that there are times when people are trying to stone Jesus, they can't do it, and we're told because the hour had not yet come. Other times they're trying to arrest Jesus, and the scripture says the hour has not yet come. And so we hear, the hour's not come, the hour's not come, the hour's not come. Jesus isn't stressed, he's not concerned. But now the hour has come. And this hour that has come is the hour for which Jesus came. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. To give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus has come for the very purpose of giving his life. And now that hour has come. As we would look in other scriptures, as Jesus prays, and he is praying, we're told in Luke chapter 22 that, and he, being in agony, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became, you know, became like what? Drops of blood falling down to the ground. I mean, this is intense prayer, so distraught that, 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 that medical doctors would describe as condition where your blood, your capillaries are bursting, and, and so your blood is being mixed with your sweat. And Jesus is in such distress, and he's praying that, it, that he, is, he is sweating drops of blood. And he knows what awaits him, because he prays in verse 36, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, a, a statement of intimacy, of affection, of trust. He's talking to his father. He's praying. He says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I, not what I will, but you will. And he describes this cup. And he says, Father, take this cup from me. And we should ask the question, well, what's the cup that he's talking about? What, 
what cup is this? And, and to not understand this, we would go back to the Old Testament and we would read. In our, in our Old Testament, we see this phrase being used and, and it represents the punishment of sin. And Psalm chapter 75 verse 8 is where it comes from. And it says this in Psalm 75 8. For in the hand of the Lord, okay, in the hand of Yahweh, our God, there is a cup. It is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it. And on all of the wicked of all of the earth, they shall drink it down to the dregs. And this cup is the cup of God's wrath. It is a cup that has been being filled since Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Whenever they decided, I know better than God, and they ate from the fruit. And that cup has been continually filled with the sins and the rebellion of mankind ever since. It, that cup was filled with our sins, with your sins and my sin. That cup contains all of this. It contains the wrath of God. It's the punishment that sinners deserve, that the enemies of God deserve. It is a cup that is filled with our lies, with our gossip. It is a cup filled with our sexual immorality, our unfaithfulness. It is a cup filled with our lies, our anger, our stealing a cup filled with our envy and our pride. It is a cup filled with all of the sins. And in that cup comes the rebellion and the punishment that we deserve. And not just what we deserve, but what all of us deserve, all of the world. And so as Jesus comes to this, he is troubled. And Jesus is troubled because he knows as the Father is about to hand him this cup and that he must drink of the wrath of God, he knows what is going to be poured out on him. He understands that Isaiah chapter 53 was written about him. And in part of Isaiah 53 says this, that he was pierced for our transgressions. That he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and all we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we see what Jesus, he recognizes. And while we read this and we're like, praise the Lord, our iniquity has been laid on someone else so that I can be forgiven and made right with God. Jesus is seeing just the opposite. Because he knows he is the one who is being pierced. He is the one who is about to be crushed. He is the one who upon uh, on him all the iniquities are laid. And as he understands the weight of that, he is troubled. And he prays, Father, all things are possible for you. He knows his Father and he understands that God is a God of the impossible. That God is able to do all things. And he says in his prayer, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. And he's saying, if it's possible, you can do all things to remove this cup from me. Please, Father, if there's any other way. And then he rests and he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And as Jesus is pleading to the Father, this cup be removed, he understands that this is going to be costly. 
he not only understands, he certainly understands the brutal death that is awaiting him, but even more that he understands the weight of sin that will come upon him and that the eternal Son of God, who's never known any separation from the Father, is going to be separated from him. That all he's ever known is the Father's good pleasure. And now the Father's anger and wrath is going to be poured out on him. And Jesus is troubled. And he is troubled. Then he confesses, God, all things are possible for you. And as we would think about this, well, if all things are possible, why does he make Jesus do this? And the answer is because while all things are possible in the context of, of, God's, of God's judgment and of forgiveness, that God is certainly judge and God can certainly forgive, but those things are not possible without the work of Jesus. All things are possible, but they're only possible in this context through the work of Jesus. Here's what I mean. Turn with me in the Old Testament, all the way back to the book of Exodus. The Old Testament book of Exodus chapter 34. Now, in the history of Israel, what's happened? The Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt. They've been brought out of Egypt. Um, God parts the Red Sea. They walk through. They go to Mount Sinai. God gives them the Ten Commandments. Moses is walking down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and, and they've made a golden calf. They've already broken the covenant God wants to make with them before Moses gets off the mountain. So what did Moses do with those Ten Commandments? Right, he threw them down and he broke them. Well, as God dealt with the Israelites in that, God told Moses, come back up to the mountain, and God's going to reestablish his covenant with these unfaithful people, and he gives them a new set of commandments, another set of these Ten Commandments. And in that, Moses says, God, I want to know you. I want to see your face. And God says, no, no, you can't see my face, because if you see my face, my holiness in your sinful state, you'll be crushed. You can't see me and live. And, but God says, but I'll tell you what, I'll reveal my glory to you. And it says this, how he does that is God passes by him. And in verse 6 of Exodus 34, this is on page 34, 74 in your pew Bible, it says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And we'll pause there. We hear what this verse says. The first part of it, we love it. We love the first part of this verse. I mean, I like this part. I mean, there's a God, and what's he like? He's merciful. That means he doesn't give me what I deserve. He's gracious. That means he's willing to give me the opposite of what I deserve. He's slow to anger, which is really good because I do a lot of things that would make God angry, and he's slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love, that he overflows with love. Fantastic. He's faithful, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity. I love the fact that God is willing to forgive all of my iniquity and sin. And then it says, but who will by no means clear the guilty. I'm like, uh-oh. Wait a minute. How can that be? How can God be gracious and loving, kind, and forgive us, 
and not by no means, but not clear our guilt. I mean, how can he, he says he won't forgive my guilt, but he says he forgives it. How does that work? Well, a good Bible principle, Bible study principle is when you don't understand something in the Bible, good Bible principle is what? Keep reading, right? So we read, and we read, and we read, and we read, and we're like, how's God going to solve this? That he is, he, is, he, is, he is a just God who punishes sins. And he has to punish, if he, listen, if God's a good God, he must punish sins. You think, wait a minute, that, 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 that doesn't sound right. I mean, if God's a good God, why can't he just let it go? Well, well, think about, use an example of our court system. Let's suppose somebody has broken into your house, destroyed a bunch of your stuff, taken a bunch of your stuff, and hurt one of your family members, all right? Done some, hurt your family members, pretty significant way. They show up in court and they say, judge, listen. I know you're good, I know you're kind, I know you're merciful and gracious, judge. And judge, I'm confessing that I did it, and I'm asking you to let me go. And, you, and the judge says, you know what? All those things are true. I'm good. I'll let you go. You're over here, sitting over here on the other side of the courtroom, and you're thinking, yeah, that's really good of that judge. He is a great judge. Is that what you're thinking? Absolutely not. You're thinking, wait a minute. There have been wrongs that have been done. Those wrongs must be dealt with. Because if he's a good judge, what will he do to a criminal? He's going to punish a criminal. See, the challenge, though, when we come to Scripture is what we're faced with is who's the criminal? Who, who has lied? Who has stolen? Who has gossiped? Who has committed immorality? Uh-oh. That's us. And so... In this, back here, Jesus is praying, if possible, take this cup from me. And it says in this that Jesus, he prays this three times. He goes, he prays, he comes back. He goes and prays, he comes back. He goes and prays, he comes back. And he does this three times. And at the third time, we get the idea that the Father is saying, this is not how it's going to happen. You must drink the cup. Why must Jesus drink the cup? Because sin must be punished. For God to be just and for God to be loving, punishment has to be paid. And so how does God provide forgiveness? He provides forgiveness by pouring out that cup of wrath on someone who doesn't deserve it. And Jesus is wrestling with this, and, and, and Jesus wrestles with this, and he knows that's the very purpose he came, because he says, not my will, but your will be done. And what is the Father's will? Well, in John chapter 6, we read the Father's will, and this is what we read. And Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven. What's it say? Not to do what? Not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. What's the will of the Father? That everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. What's the Father's? Jesus says, not my will. What's Jesus' will? He doesn't want to drink the cup and endure that. But what's the Father's will? The Father wants to save us. 
He wants to pour out his loving kindness and his grace. He wants to forgive us. What's the only way God can be just and forgiving? Is for Jesus to drink this cup of wrath. And so what does Jesus say? Father, not my will, but yours. And we see this incredible love of Jesus. His love for the Father, his love for us. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus denies himself to do the will of the Father. The very thing he calls us to do. Remember earlier in the book that Weir said, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And so if we are going to follow Jesus, we too must surrender our will to his. And I would ask you the question, When was the last time you agonized over doing God's will? When you agonized over doing God's will, when there's something in front of you that somebody was saying something to you or somebody has done something or you are tempted in such a way that you literally are agonized over, God, I know what you want of me and I know that's not, you do not want me to go this way, God, but but God, everything in me is like pulling me and I want that and I want that. When was the last time you agonized to do God's will? I'm burdened by that. Man, in my own life, I'm burdened by that because I think oftentimes that a temptation comes and we so, we're just like, um, okay, God, I'm praying. Okay, I'm going to do it anyway. And it's like, we're, like, where's the fight? Where's the struggle? Where's the striving after righteousness and holiness and purity? Where is this hunger and thirst for righteousness? And oftentimes that hunger and thirst is like, eh, I'm pretty full. And so often when we're confronted with what's God's will and my will, that we too easily, we so easily give in to our will. And we sin against our God. Be a good question to think on the last time that you agonized to do the will of the Father. And as we see Jesus surrendering his will to the Father, we recognize that Jesus is not a helpless victim in this. That Jesus is a willing participant. He is a willing participant because he loves the Father. He loves the Father's will. And because he loves the Father's will, he's going to do the Father's will and accomplish this this. this receiving the wrath and drinking the cup so we, you and I, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Jesus has done this for us. Well, the passage continues in verse 37, and he came and he found them sleeping. So the disciples sleep, and Jesus leaves them and they sleep, and he leaves them and they sleep. And look what it says in verse 37. He, and he said, Peter, Simon, Why are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And they do this three different times. But listen, look at what he says. Our passage, it says, he said to who? He said to Peter. And he says to Peter, Simon. Like, wait a minute. Why is he calling Peter, Simon. And why does Mark put those together so hopefully we don't miss this, right? Because who is Peter? Well, Peter and Simon is the same guy. 
But why the two names? Remember back Jesus was asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. And you will be called, your name's Simon, that's your given name, but now you're going to be Peter because I'm going to use you to help establish my church. Peter means rock. And so in many ways, what do, we, what do we see here? That he came and he found them sleeping. And he says to the one who's supposed to be the rock, he calls him his old name. Why does he call him his old name? Because he's living like his old self. Because Jesus is saying to him, could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray. He's saying, Peter, Simon, you have failed. And, and we think about that in our lives. How often are we like that? That so often, how are we like Simon? I mean, God's made us new. He's given me new life in Christ. He is, I'm a new creature. Everything new is about me. And yet I live like the old self. And that we're often just so easily slide into being, slide into, slide into being Simon, our old self. But it's, it, listen, it's even interesting, though. Look at the love of Jesus in verse 38. He doesn't say, could you not watch one hour? Don't you guys get it? I'm about, the hour has come. I'm about to drink the wrath of God for all of mankind, for you guys, and you're sleeping? Get up and pray for me. What does he say? Watch and pray. Pray what? that you may not enter temptation. Astounding. The most heavy moment of Jesus' life, and who is he focused on? His disciples. And he's saying, you guys need to watch and pray. You need to be praying for yourselves because it's going to get tough. You need to watch and pray. And he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. I know you're sincere. But you're failing. I know you really, really, really want to love God. You really, really want to serve God. But you keep blowing it. And it's not because of a lack of sincerity. So what does Jesus tell them to do? Watch and pray. Listen, Jesus is setting these guys up for success. He knows they're all going to abandon him shortly. He told them that at supper earlier. You're all going to abandon me, but he's setting them up for success, helping them to understand that if, if they would watch and pray, they could have victory. John MacArthur describes this passage this way. He said the disciples needed to learn that spiritual victory goes to those who are alert in prayer and depend on God. Spiritual victory goes to those who are alert in prayer and depend on God. He goes on, self-confidence and spiritual unpreparedness, which is often all of us, it's me, self-confidence, spiritual unpreparedness leads to spiritual disaster. We fail. And so Jesus comes and he comes back to them in our passage and he does this and he goes three times and he has been praying. And finally we see Jesus in verse 41, he came a third time and he said, Are you still sleeping and taking rest? Enough! The hour has come. The Son is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. My, my betrayer is at hand. 
And as we see this, Jesus, he sees, he knows that Judas is coming. And he says, enough, it's over, it's time. And it says in verse 43, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with the crowd of swords and clubs, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and the betrayer had given him a sign, saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. In our culture, it would be this. Hey, the one I come up and I give the, uh, you know, the bro hug to, right? When I go up, I give him a hug. The one, I've got the knife in my hand and I stab in the back, that's the guy. And that's what Judas does. This one who's been with Jesus for three years, he has been a friend of Jesus. Jesus has shared a meal with him. He's washed his feet within just a few hours. What does he do? He betrays Jesus with a kiss. And he just betrays him with a kiss. Verse 46 says, And they laid hands on him, and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And we know from other Gospels that this was Peter. And it's interesting, isn't it, that what does Peter do? All the crowd shows up. He's ready for action, right? They show up. He draws the sword. Jesus is with him, after all. And Jesus is with him. He can do anything. So he draws the sword, and he cuts off this dude's ear, right, which would have been pretty interesting to watch. And so he cuts off this guy's ear, and then we know from other Gospels that Jesus healed him, and he says, put the sword away. But it's interesting, isn't it, that what is Peter passionate about? I'd say this, that Peter was eager for action, but he was passive in prayer. How often is that like us? How often is that like us? Peter, eager for action but passive in prayer, that oftentimes, listen, I don't want to waste time praying. I'm tired. I need to get some sleep. And so these guys, what do they do? They go to sleep. I don't want to waste time praying. But boy, time for action. I'm ready to go. And what does he do? Well, as John MacArthur says, self-confidence and spiritual unpreparedness leads to spiritual disaster. Because as Peter cuts off this ear, Jesus heals it. And then what happens to Peter and the disciples? Well, we're told in verse 50 that they all fled. They all fled. And what does Jesus say to them in verse 46? Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? Day after day I was in the temple. He's saying to them, listen, you guys are a bunch of cowards. I was in the temple every day and you could have arrested me. But you're afraid of the opinions of man. If what you thought was, or if you thought this was truly right, you wouldn't be here at night. And yet, what does he do at the end of verse 49? But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And so Jesus, in this, he confronts Simon. He confronts him for failing to pray. So he confronts him with that. But then Jesus surrenders himself. Who does he surrender himself to? The enemies. He also surrenders himself, though, to the prophecies of Scripture. He says, let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And what are these Scriptures like this? Even my close friend in whom I trusted and ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. For a prophecy of Judas, let this be fulfilled. A prophecy from Isaiah, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he, not, he opened not his mouth like a lamb that has led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus doesn't defend himself. He goes willingly. We see also then in Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherds, 
and the sheep will scatter. I will turn my hand against the little ones. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus surrenders himself in verse 50. They, as in verse 50, they scatter just as the scriptures teach. And so Jesus watches his self-confident disciples abandon him. And one of these is a young man in verse 51 who's following him. He only has a linen cloth around him. Basically, he's got a bed sheet around him. And people often wonder, well, what's this with a bed sheet? Why is he wearing a bed sheet? And, and, and many scholars believe this was probably Mark, the author of the book. Um, he, wasn't, wouldn't have been one, he wasn't one of the 12 disciples, uh, but he was connected with them. So it could be that he, they got word that this betrayal was going to happen. Mark got word. He wakes up in the night, hears Jesus is going to be betrayed, wraps himself in a sheet, gets to Gethsemane, which he knows that's where Jesus hangs out. Quick as he could, he gets there. All oh, this is going down. They grab his sheet. He takes off. And he runs away naked. I can't help but to think, though, that part of this idea that Jesus runs away, that the disciple runs away naked, is a picture of what's going on with all of the disciples, that their boasting and their self-righteousness has been stripped away, and they are laid bare. And all the things that they had hoped that they would do, they hoped that they would die for Jesus, they were in their strength, they were going to do all these things, but no, they've all fled. One runs away naked, but many, many ways, all of them are now naked from the truths that they had confessed earlier. As we look at this, Jesus, in this passage, we see his agony, this agony of victory, this agony, this not desiring to drink of this cup, but willing to do the will of the Father, that we see this agony turn to determination, a determination to do the right things. And so he surrenders his will. He grabs the cup and he says, Father, I'm going to drink it. And he's holding the cup and does Judas and the others show up to arrest him. And we could define this passage very similar to John 3.16 and we could say this, that Jesus so loved the Father that he surrendered his will so that we might not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus surrendered his will. And God, in this picture, in this passage, God is telling us that we have every reason to seek to know him, to love him, and to live for him. And the question before us today is, do you get this? Do you see yourself in this passage? And do you see that your sins and my sins have filled this cup that Jesus has willingly taken? And he has loved us by taking that cup and drinking of it so that we could be made new. And this morning, if, if you're a believer, I encourage you to, to just to, to soak in the richness of God's love for you that has been displayed and given you new life. If you're still wrestling with all of this and where are you in your relationship with God, I would encourage you this morning to, to look at this and ask yourself a question. Do, is it reasonable for me to have a love Jesus? Has he indeed taken wrath? Has he taken punishment so that I could be forgiven? And I would invite you this morning to repent of your sins, to say, Jesus, I trust and I believe that you drank this cup of wrath that I deserve. And you've experienced your death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. You've endured this agony for victory. To give me victory over sin and death and to give me hope. And Father, I need that. 
and I want that. And I would pray that that would be our prayer this morning, that we would be people who, because of what Jesus has done for us, that we would agonize to do his will. Jesus paid the price. He earned righteousness for us so that we would believe and have new life. And let us fight. Let us agonize together, to agonize in prayer, to be agonizing, to do the will of God, not so that he's going to do something for us because he's already done what needs to be accomplished, but that way we'd agonize because of what he's already done for us in his love. Let us pray. Father, we need you. Lord, and we, what we need from you is what you have provided for us in the son, your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning, I pray you would stir our hearts to grasp the significance of the agony that Jesus endured to achieve victory over sin and death. And Lord, as we would look to you, that we would rejoice and that we would be humbled and that we would overflow with gratitude. God, we thank you for the richness of your grace stir in us. And this morning, Lord, I pray as we wrap up with a song that you would help us to freshly commit to you, to doing your will instead of ours, and to be passionately praying, to be agonizing to do what you call us to do because you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.